You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and discuss it for all to hear and enjoy, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> that, that's the key. So, um, <laughs> last week and the week before, we were in Psalm 22, and we're probably going to be there for a while based on our previous state of progress, or rate of progress, I should say. Yeah, well, you know, this is the gift that keeps on giving. There's just so much in here that without like the historical and the religious context and everything that's going on at that time period, you mm-hmm. just don't get how significant it is. And you and I were talking before we started recording and uh, we went everywhere. But, you know, uh, one of the things we were talking about is how you and I are typically not psalm people. We right. just, it, it's not really, you know, you talk to a lot of people, the first thing they say, oh, my favorite book of the Bible is. Um, And I have found that as I'm going through this, I'm just getting so much out of this that I might be kind of shifting just a little bit. Of course, my favorite book is whatever book I'm studying at the time. So, uh, but, you know, if you don't have that context and you don't have that background, uh, it is just pretty little words put together. It's not it doesn't have the same impact. And Mm -hmm. I I love the fact that as I'm kind of being quote unquote forced, because this is the podcast and you know, it is in the next, it's the next section. It's made me go back and reconsider. And I've thought about how often when I'm doing Bible study, that really is the case. If there's a part of the Bible that I've been bored by, or I'm not interested in, if I actually sit down and study it, I usually wind up absolutely loving it. Mm. So, um, you know, so if there's a part that anybody finds themselves bored by or uninterested in, maybe that's just a good sign that it's time to go back and really dig in mm-hmm. and see what you're missing. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, si- similar to that is, uh, you know, the people who like, and this is kind of what we address throughout our whole show. We haven't said it like this specifically in a while, but it's kind of like those problem passages and weird things that happen that people say, "Oh, well, I." I lost my faith because I read the Old Testament. And, you know, if you, if you come across, you know, much like if you're bored with something, just dive deeper. Or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the people who say that they lost their faith because of certain passages, because, well, it's because they didn't study it. They, they mm-hmm. brushed up against it and decided they didn't or, like or it. They started to, or they started to study it, but they didn't have all of the, 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 the setting to put it in. And, you know, that's one of the things, I mean, I'm not saying that things are automatically easier because you study things, uh, but there's usually a depth there. There's mm-hmm. usually something behind the scenes that you're missing. And we're actually going to talk about, because one of the big things about the Old Testament is violence. Mm-hmm. And there's so much violence in the Old Testament. Absolutely, there is. I'm not going to deny that. But we're going to talk about that violence and the, the purpose it serves and why it might be necessary. So, because uh, that's part of the psalm, is, is addressing that sort of violence and how it's not just pointless violence. It, 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 there is actually a point to it. There's a reason we have it. And it could have actually been necessary. And we're going to talk about why it could be necessary, but we'll get there. So, um, 
like I said, there's just a lot. I think I'm up to like a hundred and something pages on mm-hmm. this particular psalm. And I just want to pick up, uh, we'd started into the stanza verses 10 through 16. And I just want to read through those again and kind of get us back in context. And then we'll pick up where we left off on the discussion of that stanza. It says, he bowed the heavens and came down and came down thick darkness was under his feet. Now, actually, I love the, the Hebrew there. It's less bowed, it, and it's more he tilted the heavens. So the idea that God absolutely disrupted the balance of the heavens on the psalmist's behalf. Uh, he rode a cherub and flew and was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. And that's where we're going to pick up. Out of the brightness before him, coals flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning routed them. The channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world laid bare. And the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of his, uh, and at the rebuke of the Lord, and at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. So, we talked some last week about how this really borrowed from uh, familiar language in the, that culture and that time, and we see the same kind of language in other contemporary writings about the gods. And, um, you know, we talked about how effective communication deals with, uh, you know, shared language. If you don't have that shared language, you cannot communicate with the person you're trying to communicate with. And so we don't need to see this as a way to discount what the Bible's saying or simply say, oh, well, you know, the Bible just borrows from all these other ancient myths and repackage them. That's not what's going on. Uh, This is always, always about showing God's superiority to other uh, gods and deities that claim to have the same attributes and power. I mean, just because that's what, you know, 90s and early 2000s pop Christian entertainment was doesn't mean that's what they were doing. Is that what you're saying? I, yeah, pretty much. And you know, and the other thing too is we got to remember these these other gods, these lesser Elohim or the godlets, uh they were they had witnessed this from God. They had seen things that humanity had not seen, and why in the world wouldn't they imitate it as a way to get closer to being what the true God was? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we still see we as human beings do this. If we admire someone, we start cutting our hair like that person we start wearing the same brands that they do if humans can do it why wouldn't the spiritual realm be capable of doing the same thing so it's it's not a big mystery it's very simple we have some you know we don't even have to stretch our brains to come up with an answer and so um but we also talked about how this is psalm that was originally written by a king to describe his personal experience. Now, kings, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, are representations or even considered embodiments of the gods in certain culture. So, the idea that a king could see and experience this in his life, not unheard of, not too crazy out there. The minute it becomes a really wild ride with this psalm, is the, it's put in the collective psalm book for the nation when each and every individual can claim this as a truth for themselves. It's not just a truth for a king. It's not a truth for the elites. It's not truth for just a certain part of the population. It's everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, you've got to remember at this point in time, the idea that all of humanity, and we were talking about this before the podcast, was created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And had access to God. That's 
that's radical. Yeah, that that is. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it totally. Ch- well, yeah, you see, it changes reality. Yeah, you see that play. You just see, see it playing out in history in the way that this idea came through Israel initially. You you see it coming from the from the king into the the everyday mm-hmm. man, and you know, and that's the thing. Like Abraham wasn't really a king, right? But he, you know. Who was there before? There was the priest Melchizedek, who he was the one who was in charge. And then, but God decided, hey, no, I'm going to talk to Abraham, who's just a, just a guy. Well, I mean, just a guy. He had a, a lot of stuff, <laughs> but he was a rich guy. But um, he, he moved it royalty. away from. He wasn't royalty. He moved it away from the kingship and away from the priesthood. And mm-hmm. then, well, and then you have oh, Jacob and Esau, where the younger son is consistently chosen where the one who wasn't supposed to have the status is elevated. And the part of the purpose in that is to demonstrate this is for everyone. Yeah. Then you have Joseph. I mean, <laughs> elevated to a kingly, uh, near kingly status in Egypt. You know, he wasn't Pharaoh, but he was put in charge of a lot mm-hmm. of stuff. I mean, it, it... And he's not the oldest son. Right. Exactly. That's, you know. Yeah. Well, so I was, try- I was playing off of that the idea of not the, not the oldest. Um, and then, and then it just keeps going, and then you have this psalm where it goes from being the kingly person who's saying these things, but when you move it into the psalm book, it goes mm-hmm. from being something that the king did, like you said, to something everyone was participating in. And we yes. see that over and over and over, right down to Jesus, where it gets to we are, you know, the priesthood of all believers, that anyone has access to to the divine, uh, right. for lack of better terms, um, simply by virtue of, of of following Christ, and so that's yeah, it's it's really cool. And I don't, whenever you look at the whole pattern versus, you know, again when we break when we break the gospel into oh just these points, just these talking mm-hmm. points, it really is kind of boring. Uh, to hear the story about someone got mad at me and they want to punish me, and if I just say I'm sorry, they'll forgive me. I mean, that's, you know, I get that there is yeah. the element of forgiveness and repentance in the gospel. I don't want to discount that, but when we make it only about those things, it gets a little self-centered and the, we lose the story. Well, and then it's about what can we get. It's not about a relationship. It's about a payoff. Mm-hmm. And so... We, we want it to be relational, and I know that that's a big topic out there, this big buzzword that, you know, it's a, rela- it's a relationship, not a religion. Um, one real quick way that I want to respond to that, spirituality, and I've said, th- I've said this before, spirituality is what you believe, and everybody believes something about the spiritual realm. I don't care who you are. You either deny it, so you have a belief that way, you embrace it, you have a belief that way. Religion is how you live out what you believe. So everyone is technically living out their religion, whether we're talking about an organized religion where you go to a church or you go to some kind of building and perform rituals, that's a religion, or whether it's just your avoidance of those places. So we, we all live out our, our beliefs, mm-hmm. and technically that's all a religion is, is the living out of what we believe. And I, I just... I think sometimes we forget that Christianity is amazing because it's not so much about the ritual 
It's about the relationship that inspires you to participate in the ritual. Mm-hmm. And you need to be inspired to participate in the things of the kingdom. And if you're not inspired, then you know you probably need to do one of those relationship uh, health checks and <laughs> try to figure out what's wrong that you're not being inspired by by the presence of God, the presence of Christ, to actually try to do what you believe to be is true. Mm-hmm. And so, well, and even to even to play on that more than just because the I think the problem is we everyone wants to boil it down and and. Everyone wants to boil it down to these short little pithy statements, but the problem is mm-hmm. people sometimes will take these like short little memory tools and and treat them like that's the whole of the truth. Mm-hmm. And but mm-hmm. you have to understand you're actually you should use those little things as doorways to to into things you should mm-hmm. ponder. And more yep. more so than the it's not a religion, it's a relationship idea that you know it's such a catchy little you know. Yeah. alliterative phrase that we get to use to help us remember things. But I like, uh, you know, like when Dr. Heiser talks about, it's not about ceremony. It's not about this transactional thing that happens whenever we have ritual. It's about being part of the divine family, because whenever you talk about mm-hmm. it that way, it becomes more than just, it's, it's more than just, oh, it's a relationship. Like, oh, I'm, I'm dating I'm dating God, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Or it, right. it becomes like, no, building a family. There's a huge difference between a relationship that has so many different levels. I mean, you could have friends, you could have a dating relationship, you could have a, a engagement mm-hmm. or whatever, um, but that's different than building a family. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, and that's, that's a good twist. That's kind of what we're looking at when we talk about it being a relationship is being part of God's family as opposed to, Oh, it's just about my. It's just about how well you know. It's just about how well I'm getting on with Jesus. You know that mm-hmm. sounds. Mm-hmm. That's a totally different kind of way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, and and you know, I don't. I don't want to get too far into this, but the, that does shed some light on why the family is often one of the first things uh, attacked in uh, spiritual realm. Because if mm-hmm. you lose that model of what a family is supposed to look like and how they're supposed to function then how are you going to understand the higher truths of the divine family? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I'm not saying it can't happen. There's been a lot of people who come from broken relationships. I mean, we could talk about my husband, and I know he'd love it if I did. Uh, but, you know, he came from a crazy family background, and, you know, he's decided he didn't want that to be his reality mm-hmm, with yeah. us. So, you know, you, you aren't condemned to recreate uh, what you've experienced. So, um you know, I don't want anyone to think, oh, well, I've got to come from this good two-parent home and everything was great if I'm going to understand God's family. No, because sometimes you can look at what went wrong in your family of origin and go, that's not of God. That's not what God would want mm-hmm. in our relationship. So, you know, don't, don't ever think you're disqualified from participating just because you don't have the quote-unquote right credentials. So, right. that's the whole point of the psalm. Is the, the and that's to to bring in that inclusive factor that this is true for everyone. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, so we'll get back to the psalm because you and I have been like our brains have been twirling around this morning, and we have we talked for like what an hour and a half before yeah. we started recording. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but, it, um, well, okay, so I want to look at the. Go ahead. Oh no! I just <laughs> maybe after we're done with this show, we could we should talk about the attack on the family more, and we can put that in patreon we should, we need to do more of those but there's there's some points we i do. think would be interesting <laughs> to talk about on that so 
but I, okay. I, well, I, we- I don't want to go too far afield on this episode and I don't have all my notes on it. So it's one of those, I'm going to talk about right. it and not have all the notes. We, we mm-hmm. should do it on the, the other side. Yeah. People who, who love us. So, okay. So out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. Uh, this is, you know, the image of God as a warrior God. Uh, and so what I love about this, because I, I, you know, I rely on smart people for my information. Let's, let's be clear about that. I don't come up with all of the stuff out of my own head and you need to be grateful for that. But, um, while God is cloaked in darkness, as he's described here, he is brilliant. He's emitting fiery uh, coals or, uh, other translations have flashes of lightning before him. And in Exodus 24, 17, we have another description that's kind of parallel. It says, now the appearance of glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And we have so many other places in the Bible where God's presence is described as a fire. Now, typically in Christian circles, you start talking about fire people's minds automatically go to hellfire and damnation. Mm-hmm. We're talking about judgment and wrath. And uh, while that you know, is accurate, because we do have those descriptors, uh, there's another aspect of this fiery manifestation of God. A look in Exodus uh, 24, 18, as we, you know, uh, a little further down, from the next verse down from what I just read, it says, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses is in the middle of this devouring fire that was the manifestation of God's presence. So this fiery aspect of God is not always something that we should fear. It actually draws and leads those people who love him towards him. And so the light kind of serve, uh, serves a dual purpose. It's you know, comfort and protection for God's children, and it's wrath and judgment for those who dare to harm his children. And the light takes the form of arrows. Uh, you know, they're routing God's enemies. They, he, he is attacking those who, who are against God. And it's matched in his thundering voice. Uh, whether, but, and I'm talking you know, uh, meteorological terms, are both literal and metaphorical, and they, they, but they fall under the authority of God manifesting his will. So, you know, we have all these storm gods. We have all the, these gods who, who are capable of throwing lightning bolts or uh, causing rain, causing uh, earthquakes, all these things that can happen. And God encompasses every aspect of them. He, he's not limited to one element of nature. He controls them all. But here's the really cool thing. If you look at those um, those mythologies that have these, you know, lightning bolt wielding gods, they all have to have that created by another god. Another god forges the lightning bolt. Another god builds it for them, and then this god is the one who uses it as a weapon. God doesn't need someone else to create this weapon for him. God doesn't need someone else to provide it for him. It he actually doesn't have a created weapon. It's something that flows from him. It emanates from him. And once again, we see how this language demonstrates that God is um, superior to all these other gods. Then we have this reference to the Red Sea, um, the, the parting of the water. And it's an act accomplished with a word. Uh, it's actually less than a word. It's a blast of his nostril. He doesn't have to speak. Mm-hmm. He just breathes. And it happens. And 
So one of the most feared symbols of chaos in the ancient world was the sea. And it's unpredictable, it's violent, and here it's just controlled with a mere exhale, a sigh from God. Uh, No other God could claim such a feat. So again, we have that superiority just really driven home. Verse 17, he sent from on high, he took me and drew me out of many waters. Alter translates this as he reached from on high and took me. So Bergen notes that David's life is never described as being uh, in danger from waters. We we don't have any uh, great voyage of David, which might have been actually an interesting story if somebody had chosen to uh, write one. But anyway, Zamora sees this as a connection to the ancient myths where the head gods are um, of most of the pantheons. They're the head god because they did conquer the sea. They conquered those chaos monsters that were supposed to be in the sea. And if Zamora is correct, then David is shifting the focus from historical, which we've got these historical events that he's been recounting, to a cosmic spiritual event, and where God is fierce and he's terrible in his protection of the people. So verse 18, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from, who, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord has was my support. So David simultaneously presents us with these interlocking planes of reality playing out together. And we have the historical national, where we look back at the Exodus, we have the cosmic spiritual, and we have the personal tangible. So all of these things, they they are intertwined and they, they're not distinct from each other. They they have to be together. And all three play out together, influencing each other and being influenced by each other, and all focus on the interdependence between man and God, so or humanity and God, if I want to be more, more inclusive. So the idea that you don't have the physical apart from the spiritual, and you, the spiritual is not indifferent to the physical, you have to have all of these things together. Why? Because that's how God designed it. We were never supposed to bifurcate the spiritual and the mundane, or the spiritual and the tangible, it's all supposed to play together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we should really be asking why this, um, why this is important. And the reason why all this is important is because we have a God who actually deigns to intervene in the affairs of humanity. We have a spiritual God who is not relegated to the spiritual world. He actually rides his cherubs. He transverses that that boundary between the spiritual and the physical so he can be a part of our life. And so David um, tells you why God does this. This is verse 20. He brought me out of into a broad place. He rescued me because he was delighted in me. Now, for a lot of Christians, that is like a crazy statement. The idea that God could delight in humanity, in any person, when we're so wretched and sinful, and how could anybody say that God delights in them? Well, we know God hates humans. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm being a little flippant there. Uh, but that is the impression that you that we get from some uh, some very popular Bible teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will. It, it's like God loves us through gritted teeth. You know, He just barely tolerates our our existence. And the only reason why he is willing to actually save us is because he said he would, and 
It's to bring him more glory. It's not about establishing a relationship. It's not about the individual having significance. It's about his glory. Is God glorified whenever he is operating with humanity and accomplishing his will through an individual person? Absolutely. But there's still room for that individual. He, he allows us to, to express these elements of him through uh, you know, unique elements of him through unique individuals. And, and that delights him. And I think sometimes we, we forget that there is, a, it, it's not about wrath and judgment and trying to, to create um, this oppressive relationship where the human, human has no input, no role to play. He just becomes this little mindless um, robot, which God can control. This really is about being able to still maintain the image of the creator and participate with the creator, but to do so in a way that is willing and, and celebrates our individuality as humans. And, you know, there's, this has been taken too far in some circles. I get that. Um, we often hear the argument made, well, this is just how God made me. And if you love me, then you're going to have to accept me this way. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not what I'm saying. God always transforms. He always transforms. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. We, we, we have an obligation to die to self. We have an obligation to actually put to death those things that separate us from him. That, that's part of our, our responsibility within the relationship. And so we don't want to overlook the fact that this isn't just carte blanche permission to do whatever we want, but this is not saying that we have to be less than who God wants us to be. And so this is why it's so important that we, <clears throat> excuse me, that we, we study the word and that we try to figure out what pleases God, because this is what we do with someone we love. What pleases them? How can we be of service to them, not out of some kind of dread, but because it's a joy to, to foster and to nourish that relationship through these acts of service? And I'm not saying that's what ser- saves you, but if you are saved, you should be inspired to do so. So anyway, uh, not in my note. <laughs> and now we're going to go to the next stanza. stanza. And I, I want to read the entirety of this because this is where it just gets wild. And there is people who have come against this part and so there's issues with this with these next few verses. And we want to talk about how this plays out and how do we reconcile what David is about to say with what has happened in his life. So uh, got a puppy helping me. Verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the way of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to my cleanness in his sight. So I see the wheels turning. No, I, this is a very interesting passage, and you, you've you've alluded to some of the stuff you're going to talk about um, <laughs> with me on the phone, or you know, earlier, or in the, our past conversation. So I'm really curious to see what you got going on here. 
Okay, because I, you know this flies in the face of what so many of us have been taught, uh, particularly in regards to the total depravity of man. Human beings are so um, vile and sinful that if God gave us exactly what we deserve, then we'd all be burning in hell. And yet, David seems to be making a statement that is completely contrary to what we find in Scripture later on and in other places. So, in order to try not to muddy the waters too much, let's stick with David and let's look at the context of David. So, we know that David sinned, right? Mm-hmm. We, we've got this, this very glaring sin, which everybody wants to point to, that's Bathsheba and Uriah. I won't go back into that story because I think we covered it well in our last one. Um, David sinned multiple times outside of that. Uh, He's committed sins that under the Torah are worthy of death. He should have been stoned for some of the things he did, according to God's own word. That's never covered up. That's never hidden in the Bible. It's not, I mean, Chronicles leaves it out, but they're telling a different story, but we still have it revealed very plainly in the book of Samuel. And here David is saying, I didn't turn aside from God's law. I did what was right. I, I'm righteous. And even more than that, what's crazy, God is responding to David as if what David is saying is true. So he just told us that God tilted the heavens on his behalf because David cried out to him. And so, you know, in the most plain, simple reading, and this is why you've got to be careful when somebody tells you, hey, let's stick to the plain reading of the text. Okay, fine, let's do that. But the plain reading of the text needs to include context. If you don't have the context, you're not getting the plain reading of the text, you're getting a twisted half reading of the text. Yeah, and of course, as soon as you try to add context, you're you're accused of trying to contextualize the Bible away, and well... I'm sorry, but if your interpretation cannot, if it, and we, I mentioned this before we were on the phone, before we started recording, but if, if your interpretation <laughs> exactly of the say. Bible cannot uh, withstand the context of the Bible, if you're, then it's wrong. You're, you're done. That, that's, there's nowhere you can go. You can't sustain it if, if it, if your portion, if your reading of a portion just can't stand up to just adding the verses before and after. Or even, Mm -hmm. you know, or the whole book, or even something in another book. It's a wrong interpretation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and context does matter. And, you know, that's rule number two, context, context, context. I mean, we cannot drive that home enough because too often when you pull a section of the Bible out of context, you wind up with something that is heretical or blasphemous. And that, you know, right here. Where David's saying, I, 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 me, me, me. You know, we know that is not the appropriate interpretation taken on its own. And so we need to be willing to look at this statement within the context of the psalm, but also within the context of the one who wrote the psalm. And that's one of the beautiful things about having this in the book of Samuel and not just in the psalm book itself. We actually have it attributed to David. And there's going to be people who say it absolutely could not be David who wrote it. Okay, fine, whatever. The point is, whoever put this in this book and said David did write it, believed that it was uh, accurate enough, an accurate enough description of David's relationship with God that it could be attributed to him. And so this is the way God has chosen to preserve it. So that's the way we're going to take it, that it is the words of David 
or at least is an accurate reflection of David's relationship with what, God. What? You mean God knew what he was doing when he wrote the Bible or when he had people you know. compile the Bible or however you want to look at it? <laughs> I mean, I, I still you know, struggle with the proper language for that. Well, you know, I, I think it's really awesome that God did decide to include people knowing full well that we could mess it up. And he allowed us the grace and freedom to actually um, participate without erasing our minds and ability to think. And so, um, you know, I, I don't understand why anybody would have a problem with that. I, I, I just, I don't. But maybe it's because I think God does love individuals and God does trust humanity to a certain degree. And mm-hmm. he knows our hearts, he knows our desires, and he even knows when we act out of sync with, those, with our hearts and desires. You know, mm-hmm. and Paul even talks about how he does things he doesn't want to do. And, you know, sometimes this happens. Why? Because we're flawed human beings, but God looks to the heart. He doesn't see things as people see things. He says that earlier in this very book we're studying. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, that's the beautiful thing when we're dealing about an omniscient God. He knows everything. He doesn't just know what's on the surface of who we are. He actually looks beyond that. And sometimes what's beyond the surface is something so much more amazing than we will ever present to the world. And God, that's what God responds to. So, um, now, in the tradition we were raised in, these statements would pretty much be nothing short of blasphemous. Because how could anybody say that? Only Jesus could say that. And yet, here's David making these um, proclamations about himself. And so, what do we do with these statements that really if you just want to take a plain reading of the text, are demonstrably false. And so, you know, this poses a problem to theologians who cannot look beyond. So, David, David's life operates under the dictates of the Torah. This is where he is. This is before Christ. This is before uh, the New Testament, obviously. But the Torah is God's revealed word to Israel at that time. Everyone was obligated from the least person in the kingdom all the way up to the king. They're mm-hmm. supposed to follow the Torah. Okay? So that's the first point. So God gave the parameters. This is how you interact with me. This is how you receive blessings. And if you go back to Deuteronomy, so often what God says, if you do this, I will do that. If you honor me, I'll bless you. If you dishonor me, I'll curse you. It's an if-then. You get to decide how you're going to participate with the rules God has set in place. The second thing we need to know is when David writes this, he's nearing the end of his life. This is the end of his reign. Many, many years have passed since the events between David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. Um, And we know this because when Saul takes the throne, he's at least 12, according to some sources, but most sources lean more to 19, 20 years old. Solomon was not born until, uh, until after the events with Bathsheba and Uriah. Mm-hmm. So we've got at least a, probably a couple of decades, at least one, between these events. And we know that David repented of his sins. We've got Psalm 51 lays out David's repentance in graphic, specific ways. And we know that whenever David takes the census. We've already talked about that, even though it comes later in the book. We've already talked about that. David 
gets it. No prophet had to confront him. Nobody had to reveal to him what he did wrong. He knew it, and he responded. He immediately began his process of repentance. So it's helpful to remember what David said uh, in Psalm 51 about repentance. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So David's acknowledged with his life prior to this psalm that his righteousness, his cleanliness does not depend on him. It depends on God. And so David repented, and he David in faith believed that God responded to do all that David had asked of him. So in other words, David's standing in 2 Samuel 22 is not reliant on what David had actually done. David's standing before God is actually reliant on what God has declared he will do for those who repent. So we we can't take this, this stanza of the song and read it apart from what David has already revealed to us to be true throughout his life, mm-hmm. which is when God says he forgives, when God says he cleans, God purges, we really are whiter than snow. Everything's gone. It's not that, oh, well, you know, I asked for forgiveness and I'm going to get into heaven, but I'm still this lousy sinner. No, it's God's work is complete. We don't have to worry about whether or not the sins that we've committed still are held against us in some kind of little, you know, it's not like a human interaction. I mean, because how many times have we messed up, we either on purpose or not, and we've gone to our spouse and said, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. But then your spouse is just waiting for you to do it again. Or maybe you're waiting on your spouse to do it again. <laughs> and so there's kind of that little bit of what if kind of creeping in and that starts to, to um, influence your interactions. And you really have to work against that. That's not a great way to conduct a marriage, by the way. I should clarify that. That's just human nature and we have to work against it. God doesn't do that. And so when we say, hey, God's forgiven me, we need to actually believe that's true. And David is exhibiting a very high level of faith. This is a faith statement by David about not him, but about the nature of God's forgiveness and God's restoration. And so this is taking Psalm 51, taking that repentance process into account radically changes the plain reading of the text. Because the plain reading of the text isn't about what David's done. It Now it's about David's faith in what God has done. Mm-hmm. And so he is claiming the promises of God with full faith. And that's what we need to be recognizing about David's statement here. When you repent, when you go to God and you are trying to, to do the best you can to restore that relationship and draw closer to him, God is faithful to uphold his promises to make that a reality. And that's where David is at this point in his life. Now, uh, we've talked about before a little bit more context. Um, These last four chapters are not chronological. We know that. And um, they're actually put in this order for a very specific reason. But if we look at the chronology, 
Uh, and the reason why we want to look at the chronology is we want to look at Saul who came before, Saul who never repents, Saul who never seeks God's forgiveness. And then we go forward into the book of Kings, which a lot of scholars believe they're the same book, that they all flow together. We're going to find that what this does is demonstrate a distinction between David and the evil kings that follow in the book of Kings. So David's sins are singular events, okay? The, the reason why Bathsheba and Uriah's story is so startling and so jarring within the context of David's story is because we don't expect it from him. Mm -hmm. It's out of character. It's not what we want from the, God, the king that God appointed. And also, when we look at these other kings in the future, when the prophet comes to them, they, the prophets are scared to approach the king. Why? Because the king might have them killed. Most of the time, these kings reject what the prophet has to say. They don't want to hear it. They try to silence God's prophets. David never does that. And David, because he's able to hear the words of the prophets, he's able to respond. He becomes the measuring stick, if you will, of what it looks like to be a good king. Mm -hmm. And so either the, the kings are good and they turn their hearts towards God, or they're evil and they turn their hearts away from God. And yeah. so that's how they're remembered. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, and it says, says he, you know, he didn't depart from God. And that's, that's the thing is like, like you're saying, these other kings, they departed. They went and worshipped idols where David screwed mm -hmm. up, but repented. Yes. And I think that's kind of what you're, mm -hmm. what you're overall trying to say, um, just mm -hmm. a little more concisely. But where you have the other kings that they actually set up idols when they were disappointed with the way things were going with Yahweh. And so I th mm -hmm. that to me, I think that is the difference, like you said, and then trusting, David trusting God's repentance or God's forgiveness when David repents. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that is a pretty amazing way to look at things. Well, I, I think we forget that when we accept God's promises, they, they need to be accepted for ourselves. Uh, you know, I, I talked to friends several times. They said, you know, I can believe anything in the world is true for you. I can have great faith in God's ability to do things for you. But if I want to be very real, sometimes what I have a problem with is believing that what God says is true about me or having faith in God moving for me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the fact that David's able to have this level of faith, that's more inspiring to me than him walking out in front of a Goliath and the giant. I mean, honestly, my temperament's such that going out in front of a giant actually would be far less scary than actually saying, okay, all the stuff that God says is true is really actually absolutely true. I, you know, I don't know if it's personality or upbringing, but the idea of me going, God dealt with me according to my righteousness kind of makes me wince. <laughs> so that's, that's a scary thought. But you know, when David is used as the biblical example, and this is another thing I think we need to, to point out, um, we're not implying that David is the ultimate standard of righteousness. We're not saying that we should compare ourselves to another human being. God is the one who said David is the, the measuring stick. And God spells it out that David's faith and David's devotion was sufficient for him to be considered an, an exemplary king at that time. And we're going to 
uh, when we get into those stories, we're going to see how evil these kings are. And a real quick example that I think everyone kind of knows would be Ahab and Jezebel. And so, you know, those were evil kings. That sin was entrenched. David's sin is a one-off. And, um, but within this passage, David really defines what righteousness looks like. He tells us what he's, you know, his basis for this. He says, I've kept the ways of the Lord. And in so many things he did, I mean, even consider the fact that he could have killed Saul a couple of different times, and he didn't do it because he had faith that God would actually fulfill his word. I have not wickedly departed from God. This is what you were saying. He never turned his back on God. He, he might have stepped away. He might have looked away, but he never turned his back. Um, from his statutes, I did not turn aside. So there were, yes, with Bathsheba, he absolutely forgot what he was supposed to do, and he willingly sinned against God and her and Uriah, but he still acknowledged that God's statutes were the proper way to measure his life. He never disregarded them as irrelevant or uh, unnatural or what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it, it was not wrong. They, they weren't overwhelming. They, they shouldn't be. There, there's a specific word here that is in my head. It's so many people don't want to follow the laws and they look at the laws that God set down. And I'm not talking about Old Testament laws. I'm talking about it even as a New Testament believer. And they're like, that's just too hard. As a human being, I can't do that. That that oppresses me as a human being. David mm -hmm. doesn't do that. David recognizes that God's laws are perfect. And so he says he kept himself from guilt. This is David's list of what righteousness looks like, which is precisely the opposite of what the evil kings did, because they do, like you said, they turn to idolatry, they they reject God's laws. And um in doing so, they actually remove themselves and the nation from God's provision and blessing. And so this isn't about unfeeling legalism or blind piety in an effort to pay God off, because we do know that that happens. There are some kings who are going to do that later on in uh, the book of Kings, and God's like, you know, your, your lips, you, know, you serve me with your lips, but your hearts were far from me. This is a devotion, a core devotion to God. And if you go back and you read the beginning of the psalm, and you read all of this in context, I know that it's been, what, two weeks now? And so, but if you go back to those verses, you cannot read this psalm as anything but an impassioned declaration of David's devotion for God and God's devotion for David. This is not cold. This is not legalistic. This is not blind. This is eyes wide open celebration of some of a relationship that is embodied by a fiery God. Mm. So we, we need to really be paying attention to the context. So David goes on and he explains how God deals with humanity. He says in verse 26, with the merciful, you show yourself mercy, merciful. Ah, sorry. <laughs> and with the blameless, you show yourself blameless with the purified. You deal purely with the crooked. You make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes on the, are on the haughty people to bring them down. So David declares that God deals with different people in different ways. Oh my gosh, here now I hear somebody going, but God just no respecter of persons. Okay. God has always made it clear in his book that if you love and honor him, he loves and honors you. 
if you reject him, if you defy him, you're going to get that part of him that deals with that. So God, David's basically saying God matches the person. For some people, this is going to be a really crazy concept because this means the person, you as an individual, you get to decide how God is going to deal with you. If you want Mm -hmm. God's mercy, then you need to be merciful. And you do this through acts and expression of merciful love, and that's what God's going to match. Blameless, this means to be whole, to be sound, complete. Noah was blameless in his generation. It's the same word used of the sacrificial animals later on. Abraham, in Genesis 17.1, is called to be blameless in order that God may make a covenant with him. And, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, again, those animals, so many times, I didn't even write them all down. In Deuteronomy 32.4, God's works are perfect or blameless. And David says those, <laughs> there are those that God sees as blameless. There are people that God actually views that way, and those are the ones that God will show himself to be blameless. So in other words, because it's like, well, how do you blame God? Let's, let's rephrase it some so we can wrap our heads around it. God is acting in integrity. He's honoring his words and promises to humanity. Uh, Or to put it another way, God will not be blamed for breaking his promises or blamed for breaking his word because God is always true to his word. So the, the next line kind of illustrates the difficulty in translating poetic speech, especially when you're translating from one language to another because In order to translate this word that we're getting into, the meaning of the verb, you have to add a bunch of verbs in the English that kind of breaks the flow. Mm. And um, so the ESV says, to the crooked, you make yourself be torturous. Alter translates it with perverse, you twist and turn. Art scroll has, with the corrupt, you act perversely. Zamora says, towards the crooked, you show yourself perverse. But then he also notes that This word for perverse can be shrewd, astute, subtle, devious. Um, Young's literal translation had actually wrestler. So I thought that was an interesting translation. Um, But all these words kind of have a bad taste in our mouth. They they, they aren't the words that we like to use to apply to God. Right. Um, So... um, it, it's there's the consistency within the stanza that would actually demand almost that you the to the perverse you show yourself to be perverse because we have those parallelisms. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to remember God is dealing with each person as they've presented themselves to Him, as they've shown themselves to be, and to make a claim of of any God to make this claim is unheard of. The ancient gods didn't allow themselves to be predictable. They were unscrutable. They, they were unpredictable because there were no rules. There were no rules mm-hmm. for the people, and there were no rules for the, the God themselves. And God is above that. God actually is consistent, and he doesn't change the rules to deal with one person one way or another person another way outside the rules. He actually has laid a system in place, and it's very plainly pointed out, and I, I have people who have issues with this in Deuteronomy. If you do this, then I will do that. Mm-hmm. You have the choice. You have the responsibility and the obligation. And as a matter of fact, 
you cannot avoid making the choice to honor God or not. And when you make the choice to honor God and to love him, then he blesses you. If you don't, then he doesn't. And not having the blessing of God in your life is the same as being cursed, pretty much. Because you need God's provision. You need his sustenance. You need his grace, his mercy, and love if you're going to enjoy life on this earth. So um, the, the great thing about this, and I think we, we shouldn't miss this, is this means that humanity doesn't have to cower before God in abject terror of what he might do, do next. I, we, yeah, we tremble at his holiness and we're in awe of his glory, but we don't have to hide in fear of some inexplicable act of retribution that we don't understand why it happened. Uh, it's, there's not a whim or some fleeting caprice that makes God deal with us one way one day, and then a different way the next. There is some kind of order to this, because why? God's got a, not a God of chaos. And so in laying down these very clear expectations and these very you know, just simple rules for humanity, it's a way that allows us to be confident in his kindness and his holiness and his love. And that's what David is saying here. I did not turn aside from your laws. Why? Because they're the right thing to do. And and because I didn't turn away from them, I can count on you to behave in this manner. And mm-hmm. that's the thing. It's not about rules so much as it is about God's character. And that's what the rules reveal. They reveal God's character, a character and a heart that can be trusted to do the best for humanity. And so I want to be careful here too, because somebody's going to be like, well, it sounds like you're controlling God. No. Because God is the one who laid out the parameters. God's the Mm -hmm. one who said, this is how it works. And we operate within those parameters. Now, if I try to say, okay, God, I don't like those rules. Let me rewrite some. And I'm going to say, we're going to do this, this, and this. And now you have to respond according to the rules I laid out. Now I'm trying to control God. If I'm just simply taking him at his word as he's preserved it in our Bibles, now I can say, I am actually bowing to the dictates of God, and I'm bowing to the revealed will of God as presented to me. And he says, I can count on him to do these things. This is not anyone dictating. This is actually just accepting and believing his promises. And so, you know, I I think we need to be aware that God's character can be trusted. Because I think that when you grow up, and I, I do a lot of um, interaction with people who've come out of some very strict denominations where God is just waiting for an excuse to zap you dead. And, you know, he wants to have some minor little reason. You know, you tied your shoes wrong, so now he can inflict all kinds of suffering in your life. And the only thing stopping uh, him is Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And we don't know if Jesus can really do that. Uh, you know, there, there's this, there's this dread. There is this real fear of God. Even people who say they've walked away from religion and Christianity, a lot of times their stories will say, "I still have nightmares about hell. I still have, you know, even though I don't believe hell's real, I'm still in fear of it." Mm-hmm. And so, this is not something bad being said about God here to say that with the perverse he makes himself perverse. This is actually a revelation of his character that should free us. That says, I get to choose how God interacts with me because he told me 
these are the things I can rely on. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so this is freedom. And, and we, we um, but we don't bat an eye when we hear Jesus say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right. And <laughs> how we, you know, and if we're all made in the image of God and how we relate to each other is supposed to help us learn about how we relate to God. I mean, <laughs> I don't understand where the breakdown is. Well, and this is the thing. When you, when you start to take some of these, okay, I'm going to say something's going to sound wrong, so just bear with me. When you take some of these lighter, fluffier parts of the Bible and make them specific, or you play out the practical, logical ramifications of what's being said, that's when people start getting appalled. Sometimes truth doesn't look so great cross-stitched and hanging over the sofa. Sometimes truth can be very appalling. And sometimes truth, when it is appalling, is actually the best. It's the deepest, it's the richest, and it is the one that has the most power. And so maybe instead of recoiling from things in the Bible that kind of make us uncomfortable and going, well, you know, I just don't understand that. How many times have I heard that when I've had people you know, talk about a passage that's hard, well, I just don't understand that. And they pull back and they don't want to look at it because that's an image of God that they don't want to really grapple with. Maybe we just need to dive in deeper. Maybe we need to, you know, like we were talking at the beginning, go back and study what does this really mean and stop having that knee-jerk reaction that limits you in what you can accept from God. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have a reaction. We're not, okay, Emotional reactions are like physical reflexes. We don't have control of that. Okay, that, that's, that's fine. But the minute you put a thought into it, now it becomes a response. And we are responsible for our responses. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we need to actually take responsibility for our responses and say, even though this makes me uncomfortable, I'm going to push in deeper. I'm going to, to try to, to understand more because God says he's faithful. God says he's going to give understanding and wisdom to those who seek it. Mm-hmm. And so being uncomfortable with something isn't because there's a problem with God. If you're uncomfortable with something in the Bible, it's because there's a problem in you. And God's trying to use that revelation in the Word to root that out and bring you more into alignment where you can enjoy the blessing and benefit of his presence in your life. Uh, is that preaching? Did I go too far? Anyway, uh, <laughs> because... No, it it makes sense, and and it's right there. If you just understand what the Bible's saying and let the Bible speak for itself and not have to filter it through all of the cultural and traditional things that we've decided to tack onto it over the years. Mm -hmm. And I realize that we're not ever going to get completely away from some of those things because we— it's who we are. It's who we are, and it, there's a lifetime's worth of correction to be done in every single person. And mm-hmm. fortunately, there's more than a lifetime's worth of wisdom going on in the Bible, <laughs> and our God's bigger than that. And and he, right. he's, he is forgiving, and he is loving, and he does go after us. So, you know, it's not— He delights in us. Yeah. So you, you take, take that statement alone. And, and try to actually think about what that means. Because for so many people, the idea that God might delight in, you know, God might delight in Pastor So-and-so and Sister Susie, you know, but the idea that the regular, normal person, God can delight in them, well, that's kind of the whole point of the psalm. Because when we talked about this last week, the psalm isn't just about a king's experience with God. I talked about it at the beginning of this episode. Anyway, it's about all of humanity's 
claim to God that God would actually deal this way with all of humanity. That's where the no respecter of persons comes in. Everyone can claim the promises and live in the truth that's revealed here. Mm-hmm. Not just a king, not just a priest, not just the, the guy on television thumping his Bible. This is everyone. And so you just have to submit yourself to the authority of God in order to get there. I mean, it's, it, it's crazy simple, so crazy simple, and yet we want to complicate it. And it doesn't really have to be all that complicated. It can be so plain and simple that a child can understand it. Jesus promised us that. So, I mean, come on. The, the deeper stuff, the more convoluted stuff, the, the complex ideologies, this is what we do for fun. Why? Because we want to know more about the God we claim to worship, love, and serve. Mm-hmm. It, it's not because if I don't get this nailed down, I can't be saved. It's because we want to know more about him. But I think that's a really good um, yeah, that's, that's a good, place to stop. Yeah, that's a good stopping point. Because we're going to uh, go into the next, we're going to actually bring up Beatitudes, and I know that's one of your favorite um, passages. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Um, there's, there's a whole lot yeah. there. Um, so. so yeah, I think that's a good place to break. Um, everyone, until next time, be part of the conversation, ravencreeksc.com is the website gets you to this show other shows um that raven creek host um we i think we're up to what seven different podcasts we're hosting now <laughs> I don't um, know. which are I lost track which which i love um if you haven't checked out the open wallet podcast with joe and katie zaragoza that one is a lot of fun um it's they it's a you know they're married they're talking about their financial journey you know they're not experts, but they are doing some research and and figuring out what works, what doesn't. Um, you know how to how to move forward, and uh, and they're doing it in a way where they're you know trying to respect people and that there are different pathways. You know, I was, I was actually I was so I had a com so I had a conversation with Joe a few weeks ago. Um, I just I called him up to just discuss some of the Raven Creek stuff that's going on and and. Um, one of the things that I really liked that he said was almost every single one of the big name uh, Christian financial people or groups, they're always like, well, this is, you have to do this without, you know, without exception uh, all the time if you want to be rich. And he's like, they're, they're all of them are talking about being rich. He's like, well, maybe some of us don't necessarily have the goal of being rich in mind. Maybe we just want to be right. responsible and have a good financial future and go into retirement set up well to be just to be able to to live our lives. You know, it's not about mm-hmm. being rich necessarily. So um, I thought that was very uh, insightful and, and really cool. So go check them out. They're a lot of fun, um, and it's it, it's it's just good conversation um, and. And some useful information, and also some some fun. Uh, they actually did a, a a podcast on what if you won the lottery, you know. So there, there's kind of you know some <laughs> some outside the box things that you're not going to hear on other things. Um, but that being said, um, be part of the conversation. Hit us up on the website, on the social media, Raven Creek Raven Creek SC, or if you just search Raven Creek Social Club, I'm sure you'll find something we've done uh, for better or worse. <laughs> um, so have a good one. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. 
don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week. This is the Open Wallet Podcast, an exploration of personal finance. I'm Katie, a numbers nerd. And I'm Joe, a 40-year-old punk rocker. And And we're we're married. married. We're here to talk about and figure out all the personal finance questions we all deal with, like... How do I read my pay stub? How do I dress better on a budget? How do I start an emergency fund? What goes into buying a house? And lots more. So join us on Open Wallet Podcast on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts.